Hello, this is Pastor Nathaniel, and you're listening to the Edda Talk for the Eddie Walk Podcast. Here you'll find messages meant to edify and encourage God's people in the maturity, purity, and unity that comes from following Christ. From devotional thoughts to sermons from our Sunday morning services, my prayer is that the time you spend listening to this podcast will help you grow closer to our Lord and also lead you to loving others like He loves us. Let's get right to it. I'm honored to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to share God's word for you with you. Uh, I'm filling in for Nathaniel while he is away with Reagan. Um, like I said, I figured I'd start with a joke like I usually do, and I owe you one from last time. So here's a Valentine's gift or joke that you can use when you're giving your gifts if you want to. Um, so this joke is actually copyrighted, so I do have to say I got it from a book written by Charles and Francis Hunter. So the joke goes like this. After she woke up, a woman told her husband, I just dreamed you gave me a diamond necklace for Valentine's Day. What do you think it means? You'll know tonight, he said. That evening, the husband came home with a small package and gave it to his wife. Delighted, she opened it to find a book titled The Meaning of Dreams. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today with humble and thankful hearts. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us and for the way that you shared your love with us. We could have never fathomed it. We thank you so much for your love that's never failing, never ceasing, never diminishing. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to what you have for us in your word this morning, and I pray that you would help me 
in my speech to deliver only what you would have me say. Again, we thank you, Lord, and we look forward to what you have for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about mutual affection and love. But to do that, we're going to step away from Peter for just a couple minutes. Instead, we're going to look at the writings of another apostle, the Apostle John. Now, John, fun fact, is my favorite disciple. And it's commonly believed that John was the youngest of all of the apostles. Now, John's song, and they could not, um, John sort of was a very good example of this in the beginning. In fact, he and his brother James, when they first started out with Jesus, earned a nickname that was could be seen as unflattering. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. And the story behind it is so bad it's almost funny that James and John, they got upset with some Samaritans for not being welcoming of them and Jesus. And so they went to Jesus with this bright idea, and they said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And, of course, Jesus rebuked them for that. And they earned the nicknames the Sons of Thunder. Now, the other interesting thing about John is that as far as theologians go, he's pretty much the best. Like, he was exploring questions and themes that a lot of us in seminary, it it takes us a long time to get to those topics. John, right off the bat in his gospel, is diving into the Logos, to the Incarnation. Absolutely brilliant man. So what's interesting is in all of his writing, he could have gone in pretty much any direction, couldn't he? He could have written theological books for us, theological letters, explaining how everything works. But instead, he comes back to a very simple theme, love. And as we read throughout John's life and throughout his writings, it's easy to see that Jesus' love completely transformed him in a radical way. In fact, it was so powerful that John can't stop talking about it. In fact, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved because he was acutely aware of how much Jesus loves us and how much Jesus loved him. And it was always on his mind, always on his thoughts. And as he's thinking about the churches and writing to the churches, that same love is also on his mind. And John was truly close to Jesus. He was a member of Jesus' inner circle. So he was a part of the twelve, yes, but he was also a part of a group of three that Jesus had with him pretty much through everything except his quiet prayer time. They were with him for some miracles that the other twelve didn't get to see. They were asked to stay awake and pray in Gethsemane. They were very, very close. A couple things. The gospel says that John leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper and had the courage to ask him a question that nobody else did. We also know that while on the cross, Jesus entrusted him to provide for his mother Mary. John was also the only apostle to record how Jesus washed their feet. John came to know Jesus' love personally, and he marveled in it. He loved Jesus deeply, and he seems to have had no qualms about probing the depths of Jesus' love for him. And it's not really a surprise, then, that love 
was so important for John, that it was something that stood out to him, something that he taught and wrote about all the time. Because he had been close to Jesus throughout his ministry and his passion. So day in and day out, he saw love. For three years, he watched Jesus heal and love people. He watched the relief in people's faces. He watched the tears of joy in their eyes as he embraced them and said, your sins are forgiven. He saw that thousands of times over. When they were walking across Israel, he and Jesus had a lot of conversations. Swapped stories around the campfire, asked questions. He'd experienced the awkward silence of Jesus working his way around the room, washing their feet. He experienced the confusion and the anguish, hearing about the crucifixion that would take place. He heard the emotion in Jesus' voice as he said the bread was his body and the wine was his blood. He walked next to Jesus on the way to Gethsemane, sensing how troubled he was. He was begged to stay awake and pray. He found a way to get to Golgotha, and he made sure he stood close to Mary, watching his master die. He saw the soldiers gamble for his Lord's clothes. He watched as Jesus struggled to breathe and witnessed the soldiers place him in a tomb. He also got to run to the empty tomb and later see his risen Lord, his friend, his beloved. He also saw Jesus forgive Peter for denying him three times. John saw love. He watched the extent of God's love unfold firsthand, and he witnessed the incredible grace and forgiveness that Jesus showed you, me, him, and the Roman executioners, Peter and all who believe in him. So turning to 1 John chapter 4, as he's writing a letter to the churches, starting at verse 7, he writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. 
For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. If I could paraphrase what he's saying, and he certainly said it way more eloquently than I can paraphrase, but it's as if he's saying, look at how Jesus loved us. Really look at it. His love is transformative. Now look at how you love your brothers and sisters in the church and see if that transformation is evident. If you're struggling to show them love, you're struggling to love God too. Jesus commanded us to love each other if we love him. You can't have one without the other. So church, you have to pay attention to how you love each other. If you're having trouble loving your fellow Christian, you'd better go back to the cross and stand there for a while. You see, John understood what we so often forget. John knew that love and unity were two of Jesus' greatest desires for us. And if we turn back to his gospel in John chapter 17, one of Jesus' prayers is recorded. This is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. At this point, Jesus is just about to head out to Gethsemane. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they clue us into what happens next once they get to Gethsemane. But John thought it important to include what happened just before that. Now think about it. If you're Jesus, what would be on your mind? You're about to leave the upper room, and once you do, there's no turning back. What would be going through your head? What were the things that you would want to say? What would be the things that you want to pray for? Well, Jesus starts by praying for himself and for the apostles. And then he prays for us. Did you know that? That you, me, all of us, we're in the Bible in John 17. And the text is Jesus' prayer for us. What was on his mind for us is this. My prayer is not for them, meaning the apostles, alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. At this critical moment of his life, he prays for three things regarding us. He wants us to love each other and to be united so that the world will be able to know that God sent Jesus and loves us like he loves him. He wants to spend eternity loving us, being in relationship with us, and his mission was to make the Father known to us so that his love would be present in us. Think about that. The last thing the Bible records him praying 
before he's thrust into the tortures of Gethsemane and Calvary is that we would share, know, have, show, evidence, and be united in love. That's powerful. And John, Peter, and Paul, they all recognize the significance of love and how much it meant to Jesus that we love each other. Notice that in the passage of 2 Peter this morning, the last thing on his list is love. The greatest sign, the ultimate thing to strive for is love. Paul doesn't argue that. In fact, he says that three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. He goes even further and provides us a beautiful description in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I saw a quote on the internet quite some time ago that changed the way I looked at this passage. And it was specifically about dating. And it said that if you're dating someone godly, you should be able to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and replace the word love with their name. And the passage should ring true. Then I was looking at the comments section. And someone said, well, first we should put our name in and make sure that matches up. And I thought that is really, really good advice. Now, it won't be perfect all the time. Believe me, there is times when the passage would more likely read, Abriana was certainly not patient. But as a general rule, the verses should ring true to our behaviors and attitudes, because we are to be like Jesus. While preparing for this message, I looked to see what the words Peter used for mutual affection and love were in Greek. Now, I'm a bit of a word nerd, and something about Greek is that they have a lot of words to describe love. There's four primary ones, and they all describe a different kind of love. It's one of the things in English that I think is a bummer, because we say that we love cupcakes the same way that we love our child or our spouse, and I don't know, it's just kind of tacky. But (laughs) in Greek, the words go pretty deep. The words that they used are these. Mutual affection is Philadelphia. And love is agape. Now, Philadelphia means brotherly love. Translated here as mutual affection. It describes the love between siblings. And sibling language was something that Paul and the disciples used a lot describing the church community. Which, side note, that in itself was radical. We've actually been studying this in seminary, where back in the day, you would describe other people in your religion or your group or your congregation as fellow worshipers. So you'd have sort of like a friendship. But Paul especially really dives into this idea of siblinghood, where it's deeper than that, that it's much more connected, that you're all in the same family, that You don't have rankings of one is better than the other. You're all children of God on equal planes in love. So that's what Philadelphia is. Agape goes a little farther than that. 
Agape is about brotherly love, but it's also the same word used to describe God's love for us. So effectively, Peter is saying, love each other like brothers and sisters, and then add to that by loving each other the way that God loves you. In John 3.16, the verb form of agape, agapao, is the same word that's used to describe the love that God has for us, that sent Jesus. In John 17, agapao is the word that Jesus uses to describe the love that God sent him with. It also describes what he wants us to have. It's this agapao that he wants our unity to witness to. Not surprisingly, in 1 John 4, John also uses agape. Paul also uses agape in 1 Corinthians 13. We're not called to tolerate each other or just be buddies with each other, not even be just siblings with each other. We are called to love each other as siblings, yes, but more than that, we're to model for each other the love that God has for us, the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Because love isn't a watered-down word that the disciples thought would be cute to put on the corner of their business cards. It's not chocolates and roses, although they're great, or a suggestion to care for each other about as much as we enjoy a cupcake. It's not optional. It's not temporary or revocable. Love is agape. It's the love of God overflowing in us and out to others. It's knowing that our brothers and sisters are loved just as much as we are and as much as Jesus himself is. Love is Jesus' MO, his modus operandi. And the thing he commanded us and prayed for us over and over again is to love each other. As many, probably most of you know, I was born and raised in this church. Never for a moment have I doubted your love for me as your sister in Christ. And I want you to know how special that is. And I don't take that for granted. I am very grateful. And if you knew the ways I thank God for you, I I could never express that enough. You are indeed a very loving congregation. And I hope you know how much I love you as well. That said, what I'm about to say to you, I'm preaching to myself too. Because we always have room to grow in love, don't we? And frankly, we live in an era that's obsessed with canceling and attacking people. The enemy is working overtime to encourage hate. We've all been fighting fire with fire, and we seem more content to let our communities and our nations burn if that's what it takes. And it's not just about politics either. You could look at any number of issues, and the problem is still there. And the political mess isn't even what I worry about the most. What I worry about the most is the body of Christ. Because in the Western church body as a whole, we have a really bizarre problem. And the problem is, is that some of us either never leave our comfy nests in order to ruffle some feathers, or we pluck so many feathers that we ruffle each other bald. And contrary to popular belief, this problem isn't unique to our time. Paul, Peter, and John lived in an era where the energy between Israel and Rome was about as warm and fuzzy as the difference between Republicans and Democrats. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees constantly conflicted over religious matters. And within Christianity, there were heated arguments over circumcision, the inclusion of Gentiles, whether or not the Gentile believers should keep the Jewish laws. Even Peter and Paul once went head-to-head on this. But ultimately, they remembered and reminded believers that love is what's critical. Because at the end of the day, we belong to the kingdom of God. And our behaviors and our speech should reflect that allegiance above all else. Why? John points to the cross. He says, look at how Jesus loved us. Listen to the prayer he prayed before Gethsemane. Think about his agape. And something that I've been considering lately is if we would all live differently if we kept the cross on the forefront of our minds more often. If we thought of Jesus' prayer more often. I wonder if sometimes we act more like sons of thunder than disciples embracing the love of God and teaching others what that love is like. And what if we imagine for a moment that we're in Gethsemane? If we make an honest assessment of ourselves, are we swinging our swords like Peter, willing to cut off the ear of an enemy, or are we standing with Jesus, putting down our swords and choosing to be an agent of healing and love? Further, can we take our same behaviors and reactions and perform them at the foot of the cross for Jesus to see? Can we insert ourselves into the moments where Christ's love so blatantly shines and continue doing what we're doing? Because like it or not, we do it every day. All that we do and say and think is always before him, just as much today as it was on Good Friday. And I know that's not easy to think about. It's uncomfortable. I get it. I'm human too. I'm in the same boat. And as I said, this side of eternity, we're not going to get love perfect. I'm sorry, we're just not. We haven't even figured out how to make rom-coms real life. So trying to figure out how to make Jesus love real life, we're going to miss the mark. And I know that I have a lot to work on. I have to remind myself of the cross time and time again. So like I said, I am, I'm preaching this sermon to myself to, just as much as I am to you. I can promise you that. A few weeks ago, I heard one of my favorite quotes in seminary, and it says, A good sermon is what God's laid on the heart of the minister. The minister simply lets everyone else in on that conversation. And it's true. All I'm doing is inviting you into this conversation. And it'll be a continuing conversation until Christ comes back and we are made perfect in love. As for where we go from here right now, that's for each of us and the Holy Spirit to work out between ourselves. But as we do it, we can be assured, confident. Like Paul said, confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We don't show affection and love in our own strength. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about the word history of agape, is that throughout the Bible, agape starts with Jesus. Starts with God sending Jesus, and then we're welcomed into that agape. And then we're called to show that agape. So it all originates with God. That's how we become an assembly of agape. 
It's the whole vine and the branches thing, that if we stay connected to Jesus, we'll have his life and his love pouring into us that we can give to others. That's the fruit that the Bible so often talks about. We aren't alone in this. And John, Peter, and Paul all pointed back to the cross and back to Jesus to say, this is who we're following. This is why we do it. We can testify that his love looks like this. And now church, it's your time to be an assembly of agape. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us. We try to think about the depths of your love, and it's always deeper and wider and higher than we can ever fully possibly imagine. We thank you for a love like that. We thank you that we know we can be confident on Judgment Day because there's no fear in love, and that we can be assured of your love for us. What a precious gift that is. Lord, you know that we live in a culture that's glorifying hate. And you know that it, sometimes it gets hard to continue being the salt of the earth and the light of the world as you've called us to be. I pray that you would help us, that you would keep the cross on the forefront of our minds, that we would be able to love and live like you in this broken world, that we would be agents of healing and hope. Help us to be an assembly of agape, both here within these church walls, out in our community, and out in our world. And while it's a great responsibility, we also thank you for the great honor and joy that it is to be a part of such a community of love that originates within your own very heart. So help us, Lord, we pray. Be with each of us as we go forth today. May we leave assured of your love and ready to show your love to others. Amen. Now if you'll stand for the benediction from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a blessed week. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate us on iTunes or like our page, Springwater Church the Nazarene, on Facebook. Have a great day, and Lord bless.